I kind of jokingly said this morning that this is a, the sermon to offend everyone, and I don't know that it will offend everyone, but it may wake some of us up today because in Romans chapter 1, we have really a profound truth that is outlined and set forth for us. And statistically, we see that in evangelicalism, which we are a part of uh, as a Baptist, that there is a, a significant number of evangelicals that are buying into the philosophical idea of relativism and uh, the current worldview that is predominantly taking over in popular culture. And so some of you might be offended today. Uh, and uh, maybe, uh, maybe all of us at some point will be. Uh, but I always consider it to be good preaching when your toes are stepped on a little bit, right? And sometimes a lot because we need that. Uh, we need God's Word to mold our life, not vice versa, right? And there are so many folks today that are seeking to mold the Word of God and change and shape the Word of God in their own image and make it say what they want it to say. Uh, but in reality, the Word of God is to shape us, and God's Holy Spirit is to shape us and change us uh, and make us into uh, something beautiful and wonderful and new. Christ has already done that in the moment of salvation, but our sanctification, the process by which we become more and more like Jesus as we live our life here on earth, that's an ongoing event as well. And so there should be in, in, a, in a biblical sermon that is preached under the anointing of the Holy Spirit of a living God something that, that shakes us up at least from time to time, right? Or we're perfect already. And I don't think there's anyone in here that, that is perfect already, right? Uh, so, so I hope and pray that it will shake you up a little bit at some point and make you think of your world differently. Uh, because of what the Word of God says here. I'm not going to reread what we've already read. I know it was a lot of Scripture this morning, but it was important, I felt, for us uh, to read that. But I just want to point us back to a couple of verses, and we'll, uh, we'll take our time to, to go through this. And now I've lost my glasses. Here we go. It's a bad day without Paul, isn't it? I tell you, y'all tell him that. But you go back and look at verse 18. It says, But God shows His anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because He's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Throughout everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. God has made it evident, completely obvious that he exists. And one of the most simple illustrations I've ever heard on this subject is, is when you look at a, 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 a painting, you know that there was an artist at some point which created that. You know that energy just did not happen to fall together in a certain way that it created this painting on the wall all of a sudden, right? I mean, we're not so foolish as to believe that a painting just comes together and appears on the wall. So we know there, there was an artist. And Paul says, you look around at this great creation and all the glory of it, and you see God's attributes. You see his invisible qualities. You see something of his power. You see something of his glory. I read a, a, an illustration of this once. A, a man said, I have observed the power of the watermelon seed. It has the power of drawing from the ground and through itself create 200,000 times its weight. When you can tell me how it takes this material out of the ground and colors an outside surface beyond the imitation of art and then forms inside of it a 
white rind, and within that again, a red heart thickly inlaid with black seeds, each one of which in turn is capable of drawing through itself 200,000 times its weight. When you can explain to me the mystery of a watermelon, you can ask me to explain the mystery of God. See, something as simple as the watermelon seed preaches a sermon. And what it preaches to us is the existence of a creator, the existence of intelligent design, the existence of a God who is well beyond us, a God who is transcendent, a God who is infinitely powerful, a God who is infinitely wise. That's what a watermelon seed preaches to us. Because we know God exists, we look to him to teach us what truth is. And that's a big problem for our culture today. See, if God really exists, then God is the the one who defines what is true. It has to be that way because he's the creator and we're the creation, right? The creation doesn't look back at its creator and say, let me tell you what's true. Let me tell you what's right. But that's exactly what mankind did when we rebelled against him in the garden. Adam decided, Eve decided that they would be their own God and that they would determine for themselves right from wrong, that they would be the arbiters, they would be the judge of truth. So in effect, what mankind has done has looked back in the face of God and said, yeah, you, you created me, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what, what is true. Reality is, as we look to God, that's the way it should be, that we would look to God and find out what is true. But the problem that mankind has with that is that if you look to God to tell you what is true, then you are held accountable to that truth. And for mankind who wants to be his and her own God, that is a problem. I've never met an atheist who didn't have for his primary motivation, for his atheism, the desire to be free of accountability. That's what it's all about. Just to be free from any and all accountability. The truth is this, God does exist. And he is the one who tells us what is true. But we live in a world where people think ideas and feelings and mere words create truth. Did you know that? Did you realize that? I want you to think about that statement for a minute. We live in a world where people think that ideas and feelings and mere words create truth. In effect, they're simply a testimony to verse 21. Look at verse 21 there and you see what Paul says. He says, yes, they they knew God but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. That's the world we live in today. World in which folks believe that their own thought, their own ideas and the words of their mouth create truth. I'm going to show you a video now, and it's a a little bit of a long video, but it is well worth our time. And it illustrates this point beyond anything I could ever ever say or speak myself. And this, this video is on a, on a campus, a major university campus uh, here in the United States in which this takes place. So, Ken, are you ready back there? You have that ready to roll? And we'll roll this video. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately. But how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. 
Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether you're sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I'd say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean... I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you, no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're six feet. If you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. So you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. You're like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So, I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you were six foot five or Chinese or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a 5'9 white guy that he's not a 6'5 Chinese woman. But clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? It would be a... First of all, you, what do you say to that? I, I don't know how you come out of that, really. But that if this was something that was just local, 
if it was something that just took a small group, if this was, was not a, a major, big, large part of our culture and a large part of, of the way people actually believe, uh, we could just sit back and say, well, the people in Washington are crazy, right? Washington State, that is. I believe that's where this was. But this is our entire nation. This is our entire culture. Uh, you see, we have reached a place in our culture where if you believe you're a six foot five Asian woman, who am I to tell you that you're a five foot five white boy? Uh, if, if you want to believe that you're seven years old and attend the first grade, then who am I to tell you that you're wrong? Because inside you might be seven years old. If you feel as though you're a man stuck in a woman's body or a woman stuck in a man's body, who am I to tell you which bathroom to use? That's where we are today. And the tragedy is, is that this is not just outside of the church. So much of it is happening inside the church as well. There is this idea that we cannot differentiate behavior. We cannot call something right or call something wrong. We believe we create truth by our words and the thoughts inside of our mind. And don't, don't think again that it stops at the church door because there are a great many people who call themselves Christians who say they are Christians and think just because they say they are a Christian that they are. But in reality, they've never had a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ by grace through faith. See, they've, they've never, never given their heart to Christ and, and had a relationship with Him. But they think just because they say they're a Christian, they're a Christian because they said so. This is why we look at the, the changing statistics today and that evangelical Christians uh, under the age of 35 are more likely to answer this question in the way that I'm about to say. But around a third of evangelical Christians now say same-sex marriage should be just fine and you should not make it illegal to be married. Uh, there are a lot of folks who say they're a Christian that are not a Christian. There are a lot of folks who want to say that they're a woman or a man, and they are biologically not a woman or a man. There are a lot of folks that want to say uh, that, that they are, and you fill in the blank. And who are we to tell them that they are wrong? It's a perfect demonstration, a perfect illustration of what Paul is talking about here, where people exchange the truth for a lie. Today we call this relativism. It's a philosophical school of thought in which... All things are equal. There are no moral absolutes. Anything goes. Any figment of your imagination is real because it is real for you. Our popular culture claims to be wise and loving and accepting and tolerant because of this relativism and the philosophical idea that I just uh, gave definition to today uh, called relativism. But the fact of the matter is they are exchanging the worship of a living God. They are exchanging the beauty of a relationship with him for a lie for a figment of their own imagination, for a God of their own creation. It's pretty amazing where we've come, isn't it? I mean, if you had, had told my grandfather 25 years ago that someday we would be having men dressed as women going into restrooms, not only that, not only going into the women's restroom, but... But those who said that they should not be allowed to do so would be looked at as looked upon as bigots and the problem. My grandfather would have lost his mind. But we live in that kind of culture today simply for this reason. And let me tell you something. All of the sexual deviancy and all of the things that are going on today are not the problem. 
Look, transgendered people are not the problem. Gay people are not the problem. Adulterers are not the problem. People who are drug addicts and alcoholics are not the problem. Sin is just, in whatever form it takes, a symptom of a bigger problem. A problem in which we have, as human beings, exchanged the truth for a lie. And we have decided to do exactly what Adam and Eve did, and that is to abandon the truth of who God is and his rightful role as the arbiter and judge of what truth is and taken upon ourselves something we were never intended to have, and that is to make ourselves or some figment of our imagination our God. Abandoning all accountability to anything other than self. That's the real problem. It's idolatry and sin. So what does God do with the people who reject him and reject truth as defined by him? That's the real question, isn't it? Because we can see the problem and we can see where our nation is and we see where a lot of folks are around us. And as people continue to go down this road, because, you know, I talk to people all the time, and I, I was having lunch with a minister uh, of a nearby town this week, and we were talking about culture and where popular culture was. And he said, you know, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. I believe that's what's going to happen. I thought, well, maybe that will be the case. Or maybe we'll experience a revival where people will have a coming back to God, and they'll look to God, and they'll have a, a great number of people who are saved. That's happened in our history before. That's the only real answer to this. But if that doesn't happen, and it just continues to get worse and worse, what eventually happens? Well, I'm going to give you the bad news before the good news, but what eventually happens is seen very clearly in verse 24 and 26 of our passage this morning. God abandons such people. God eventually abandons the people who reject truth and create a God or gods for themselves. There comes a time when sin takes on such consequence that there is no longer a hope for repentance for such people. That's what Scripture says. God turns them over. God lets them go. God gives them their own way. Some folks say, well, how could a loving God ever send anyone to hell? God just lovingly gives you your own way. If you choose to reject God, if you choose to reject truth, and it has been very clearly portrayed to you that God exists, that there is an accountability to be had, there is a God who created all that is, to whom you are accountable. That is very clear from just the creation and the general revelation of God that we have all around us every day. If you choose to reject that truth, there comes a point in time when there's no hope for you because God just turns you over to what you have chosen. He gives to you what you want. Isn't that a loving God who would give you that? that opportunity to choose or to reject Him? He didn't create you to make you a slave. He didn't create you to grab hold of you and force you to love Him and to have relationship with Him. He created you for that purpose, but if you choose to reject it, He has lovingly allowed you the possibility and the opportunity to walk the other way, whatever the consequences may be. And there are a great many consequences that we see here. If you look at verse 24, it seems that our culture has already been abandoned, but I'm going to make an argument that that may not be the case. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. People do vile and degrading things with their bodies all the time. God abandoned them to what we see in verses 29 through 31 here. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. 
I think sometimes Paul threw that in there just so that none of us at all could feel like we're better than anyone else. What he's saying is sin is sin. See, there, there are no degrees of sin. There are no class A sinners and class B sinners. And sometimes the church has been very guilty and very hateful to designate a certain group of people as the class A sinner that will never be like, thank God. But you know what? There are no class A sinners, class B. They're just sinners. Just sinners. And there comes a point in time when someone chooses sin and chooses their own idols and chooses self that God just says, okay, I won't bug you anymore. I won't bother you. I won't convict you. I'll let you have your way. I'll let you have what you've chosen. But there is a rescue for those who would choose right. Those who would choose God. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4, Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. God has rescued us, as some translations will say, from this present evil age. And you know what? Every age is an evil age. You say, well, man, this is the most pessimistic, depressing sermon I've ever heard in my life. Every age is an evil age until Christ returns. Why? Because the prince of the power of the air is still in control of things around here and sin is running rampant and we're born with a sin nature which seeks to cooperate with the power of sin at work upon us. And so it's a present evil age, folks. And there's only one rescue from a present evil age for any person, any individual. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's only one rescue. Listen to me now. There's only one rescue for a culture which has bought in to the present evil age. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer. You know, I I talk to folks sometimes and they'll they'll say, you know, back in the good old days, let me tell you something, there were no good old days. There may have been days that your life was better. There may have been days that you enjoyed life better. There may have been days you enjoyed the culture better. I mean, there was a golden age of baseball that I wish I had been a part of. I would have liked to have watched Mickey Mantle back in the golden age of baseball. I think that that was just a wonderful age of baseball, right? Before everybody was 225 pounds and knocking home runs and throwing the ball 105 miles an hour. I mean, it was just, it would have been wonderful. Whatever you may have preferred and whatever culture may have seemed better to you, we have always lived in a present evil age with only one answer, and that's Jesus Christ. For each of us individually and for all of us as a culture, there's nothing different. There's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes makes that very plain and very clear. There's nothing new under the sun. We always think that we're unique. We're different. But I could take you to the history books and you could look at the history books and we could look at England before the Wesleyan revivals in the 18th century. We could go back and look at the United States before the First Great Awakening and it was bad. I mean, it was so bad that the churches were full of lost people. In fact, you, in some places, it seemed as though you could not even find clergy in the churches that were saved. You couldn't find elders and deacons and preachers that were saved in the church. They were just there to make a living. People just went because it's what they were told to do and what they've done since they were little, but they didn't know Jesus, and they were vile. And then God swept across the scene with the first great awakening. There's nothing unique about us. My grandmother told me one time, said the world's not any different today than it was when I was a kid. You just know more about it. And I think that's even more true in our generation because of Facebook and other things. We just know what's going on a little better than they did back then. It's publicized a little more. 
It's not hush-hush as it might have been one day before us. And Paul says here that Christ came to deliver us from this present evil age. He came to deliver us from the power of sin. He came to deliver us from hell. He came to deliver us unto a relationship with God. He came to deliver us unto heaven. How great is that? How wonderful is that? These things which Jesus has done for us and intends for us. And, and he says here in these first verses that we, we read today, he says, I'm not ashamed of the good news. Now that I'm done with the introduction to the sermon, let me go ahead and preach. There's only one answer. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the answer. Let me tell you what I think is one of the greatest problems with our present evil age in which we live, the culture in which we live. We live in a generation where too many Christians are ashamed of the answer. So I'm not ashamed of Jesus. When it comes to Jesus, I'm John Wayne. I'm ready to take you on. You mess with my Jesus. Yeah, we get angry and sometimes hateful at people. But we're too often ashamed of what he preached, what he taught, and what he actually did. And you know the number one way that shame takes shape is in this. Just to zip your mouth. That's the way they used to tell us when I was in first grade. Now, Zachary tells me they tell you to put a bubble in your mouth. Can't talk with a bubble in your mouth. Too many Christians with bubbles in their mouth. Too many Christians with zipped lips when the hard conversations take place all around us every day. Don't tell me that you don't have hard conversations because you do. Let me tell you something. The answer to where our culture is today is not putting prayer back in schools. I talk to so many people. I can't tell you how many emails I get from people who are panicked about the culture in which we live, and rightfully so. I'm, I, you know, I'm not, not belittling them or criti criticizing them for that. Uh, it's okay. We're all in a situation where we look around us and we're troubled. But, but too often people say things like, man, if we just we took it's prayer in school that did this. No, it was the fact that there were no prayers in the home. That's what did this. And some people will say, well, you know, if we, if we, could, just, if we could just get the right people in office, we could just get the right party in office, we could just get the right president, if we could just get the, the right judges on the court, everything will change. Everything will be different. You know, murder's been outlawed forever. People still commit murder. You know what? It's illegal to steal. If you steal my truck today, I'm going to call the police after you. But you know what? People are still going after my truck. People are still stealing vehicles. Now, I'm not arguing against the legislation of morality. We need to do that for an orderly society and culture, right? I mean, it's a good thing. But let me just tell you, there are no laws that are going to change the hearts of men. All law does, if you look at Scripture, it just makes us aware of the fact that we're in trouble makes us aware of the fact that our heart is darkened and in need of the light of Christ. That's what law does. And there are no people who are going to change us outside of the person of Jesus Christ. I don't care what you think about President Obama. I don't care what you think about Donald Trump. I don't care what you think about Hillary Clinton. I don't care what you think about Bernie Sanders or anybody else. None of them are going to be the answer to this country's problem. It's just not going to happen. There's one answer, and it's Jesus Christ, and there are too many of us that are ashamed and have put a bubble in our mouth and are not speaking the gospel of Christ. 
Too many people who are walking around and say, well, somebody's going to look at my life and just see that I'm such a nice guy. They're going to want to be like me. You know, I have been combing my hair this way for a long time, and I really don't see a lot of people coming up to me and saying, you know, you've just got nice hair. I mean, for a 45-year-old man, you just have nice hair. How, what do you do? How often does that happen to you? You know, people are not looking at your life and walking up to you and saying, you know, you just, you just, you just have a nice life. There's something different about you. Now, you know, it can happen, guys. I know it does. Theoretically, it's, it's, it happens. But do you know how the disciples shared the gospel? They went out and told people. They did what Jesus said in Matthew 28. They went out and they, they told them about what Jesus did. They were not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They spoke up when those hard conversations came to their life. And as they went about their life, they won the world to Christ. How do you live a life where you're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, like Paul says here? How do you confront a world? And let me tell you something. I meant to say this earlier. How do you know when God has already abandoned someone? You don't. And you're not called to make that decision. Isn't that wonderful? I'm not called to judge whether or not God has abandoned you to hell. All I've been called to do is fish, throw a net, and hope to reel you in to the truth. What Paul is teaching us here is important for us to understand about God, His existence, and our accountability to Him and His truth. It is not an excuse for us just to shut our mouth because the world is so bad right now, God has obviously abandoned them all. No. Paul said, I'm the most vile of sinners. He was a murderer of Christians, and God saved him. So you don't know when God has, when it has, has turned someone over to their sin. You don't know, and I don't know, when God has just said, okay, you have reached that place, and I'm going to let you go. What we're called to do is fish. What we're called to do is be bold. And what we're called to do is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? How, how do we be a bold person? We want to be that, don't we? We want to be bold and we want to be a part of the solution. Well, first of all, you pray for boldness. The, the, the early Christians, they prayed for boldness. A lot of folks look at these guys and they think they were some kind of superhuman. I mean, these were the original X-Men, Right? These, these disciples that were the New Testament Christians. New Testament Christians were the hall. That was where the original hall of justice existed. And Superman was there. And his name was Paul. But listen, they were, they were no different than us. No different. They were scared. They hurt. They suffered. Many ways that we'll never likely be called to suffer. And in Acts 4, we see they prayed for boldness. He said, God, make us bold. You're never going to be bold unless you ask God to make you bold because in yourself you can't do it. Your passion for Christ has to lead you to your knees in which you ask for a supernatural empowerment, something transcendent beyond yourself that you might connect and experience God in such a way that it compels you to take that message to the world. You have to pray. And the second thing, as I said, you just have to stand. Don't back down from the conversations when people are talking about abortion. They're talking about gay marriage and poverty and alcohol and drug abuse and bathrooms or whatever else is going on in our culture today. You don't back down. And you know what? I, I, like to, I, like, I love this line. You can use this line. Call it your own. You don't have to even attribute it to me. Don't say my preacher said this. Just say you did, okay? Just say it's yours. I love to say this to people and just say, you know, they ask me what I believe about stuff. And I love having conversations with people that don't know I'm a pastor. It's a lot more fun that way. But, but when you, people will talk to you and they'll say what they believe about things. And I might say, you know, I just, 
I just believe marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, not to pick on homosexuals today, I'm just using it as an example. Or, or someone will say, you know, uh, talking about abortion, I say, you know, I, just, I think abortion is murder, and I just don't believe it. I think there's grace for those who've had abortions and forgiveness, but I just don't agree with that. I don't believe that. And they'll say, how dare you? They'll, they'll pull this stuff that we see up here in the video. They'll say, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? And people will pull Scripture out sometimes when they find out you're a Christian. Say, you know, you're not supposed to judge. You're a Christian. You're not supposed to judge. And you know what I say to him? I love this line. I say, you know, I don't honestly judge. Because what I consider to be right and wrong is point beside the point. It doesn't matter what I personally believe or my opinion about anything. In fact, my opinions half the time at least are wrong about whatever subject you want to talk about, I'm sure of it. But God's opinions matter. And I'm not telling you my judgment. I'm just saying this is God's judgment. This is what the Word of God says. When God's Word says, Thou shall not steal, I like to use King James in those moments, say, Thou shall not steal. It's not my opinion. I didn't make that up, and I didn't just wake up one morning and say, You know, it's a good idea no one steals from each other. We should just all stop stealing from each other. That's my opinion, and that's what the law ought to be. And I'm going to judge everyone who steals. No, I didn't come up with that on my own. God said that. God has given us a vision, a demonstration. He's shed light. He's told, he's told us what is right and what is wrong. It's not my opinion. I'm not judging. I'm just telling you. This is what Scripture says, and I believe in Scripture, and I believe in God. And I say, well, how can you believe in God? You know, God, how do we know he exists? And this is silly, and Christians are silly. Well, look all around you, partner. This building is here because there was a builder. Energy just didn't come together, and poof, one day we had a building with stained glass. And this creation speaks to the existence of God is the judge and arbiter of all truth. And I bow my knee to him. Third thing is you be intentional. Goes back a little bit to what I said a while ago. You can't just walk around hoping some day somebody's going to walk up to you and say, could you explain justification to me? No, it's not going to happen that way, most likely. But you are intentional and you go to people and you say, have you ever thought about whether or not there's anything after you die? After this life, I found it best not to mention the word die. I just say, you ever thought about what's going to happen out there someday, a thousand years from now where you might be? You ever thought about that? What do you think about that? What do you think about the afterlife? Prince died this week. You say, you know, you ever wonder where Prince is today? You ever wonder what happens after this life? See, you have to be intentional. Use those openings to say, you know, this is what Scripture says. This is what the Bible teaches us and tells us about the afterlife. And this is what I believe in. This is why I believe it. And share the gospel. And you don't have to be a theologian. You just say, Jesus loves us. We're sinners. That's obvious. We do things that are wrong. Jesus loves us. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. If we accept and receive his forgiveness and give our life to him, we're saved from sin hell, and a future separated from God and saved unto eternal life, a life both of quality and quantity, a life that will never end and a life that has no adjectives in human language, the English language, to describe how wonderful it is. You have to be intentional. Another thing, a fourth thing, and I'll just, I'll just say stop whining about everything. If you want to be a bold Christian, stop whining about stuff. Nobody wants to listen to a whiner. Do you know that? I heard someone in the sermon one day said, just stop complaining about all your illnesses and all your aches and pains. 
He was preaching to a crowd. He said, nobody cares. Nobody wants to hear that. You got something legitimate you want to pray about? Great. We'll pray for you. But you've been around those people that every time you come up to them, the first word out of their mouth is the newest day campaign for the week. I mean, nobody wants to hear it. I mean, really, nobody wants to hear that. Now, they may be gracious to you and compassionate towards you, and they may love you, but they're hoping that you have something else to say too. But we are whiners as Christians today. We are the biggest whiners in the bunch. We whine about everything, about how bad everything is. We whine about it just, just, just now look at the world we live in, and we just start going down the list. How bad everything is, how many people are on drugs, and how many people are on alcohol, and how bad the church is, and how, how bad, you know, that we've got gay marriage, and we've got abortion, and we've got this, and we've got this, and we've got this, and we've got leaders that don't, don't know or love God, and they're godless, and they're mocking our faith, and, blah, and, we, go, and we are the biggest whiners in the world. Nobody wants to hear a whiner. One of the problems with Christians today is we whine all the time about everything. People say, where's your faith? All I see is a bunch of whine. And if you're Baptist, you got a real problem with wine, right? So it's just a bunch of whining is what it is. You want to be someone who's bold and sharing the faith, then stop whining. Start being intentional. Start praying for boldness. And start sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, walk by faith. Paul says here, I'm not ashamed of the good news of Christ. It is the power of God. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Have faith. You can stop whining when you have faith. You can start believing for a changed life and a changed church and a changed family and a changed community and a changed world when you have faith. And I just want to close out with this and I want to give you a picture to walk out of here with. I want to leave you with a picture. So use your imagination, all right? And I want to give you hope, the expectation of good things. Jesus came to save us and all who will have faith in him from this present evil age. That was something true for the church in Galatia. It's something true for the church in the United States of America, the church here in Bedford, Texas. We are brokenhearted at a culture that has moved from Christian to post-Christian. We are brokenhearted for all of the many symptoms we see of the disease, which is so rampantly taking root in the lives of so many people around us. But Jesus came to save this generation, this people from this present evil age, just like he saved the people in Galatia. Let me tell you, it, it's still something. It's still an opportunity that is given to each one of us. If you want to change life, you begin to walk by faith. Begin to take those scriptures. Begin to believe them, not just say them. Begin to trust them, not just, not just memorize them. Believe and trust the Word of God and begin to walk in it. And then look at the world around you through those eyes of faith and have faith for them as well. So I can say, 
God demonstrated his love for me. And while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And no matter what this person has done in front of me and how vile their life may be, Christ died for them too, loved them too, loved them so much to die for them, even while they are still in the state that they're in. God loves them right now. God loves us all. God doesn't just love good little boys. He loves all little boys, right? He loves us all. And he has saved us from this present evil age if we'll have faith in him. If you do not know Jesus Christ personally as your Savior this morning, your Savior from sin, the power of sin in hell, and eternal separation from God, your Savior to eternal life in Him. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't have eternal life, this morning is your opportunity to be saved. This morning is your opportunity to have faith. That is to believe in the truth that I've just said and shared and to place your trust in it, rely on it for your life. And pray and say, God, I believe you. I believe your word is true. You created all that is. It's very evident you are a creating God. You are the creator. I believe you sent your son Jesus as a payment for our sins because there had to be payment for our sins or God isn't just. And I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe that. I ask for that forgiveness. I receive that payment for my sins and I give my life to you. If you've never done something like that, then this morning is your opportunity to be saved from this present evil age. But for those that are believers in this room this morning, and that's probably most of us, listen, we need to begin to have faith for this time, for this generation. We're soon to depart from here, guys. Do you know that? And, and, and who knows who's old in this room? We look around us and we say, well, those that are 85 and above are old. But let me tell you something. A person that dies next week who's 25 is a lot older than the 85-year-old is going to die three years from now. And we're going to all quickly be off the scene. We have just such a short period of time. And we're not responsible for generations past or the generations that will come way into the future. We may affect them. We may affect them and have some, some consequence there. But this is the generation that we've been called to live in. All of the impact both now and in the future is something that happens right here, right now. My son asked me the other day where I was going to be when he was 100. I said, brother... It ain't here. I'm pretty sure of it. I'm going to be 141. I'll at least have been off the scene for 20 years by then, right? So we only have such a short period of time. And listen, I, this is the picture I want to leave you with today. Things can be different, but they're going to be different if we decide that we are going to be different. If we make the decision to have faith and walk by faith in Christ. If we decide that we're not going to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we can look around at this very sin-sick generation in which we live and can say, you know what? This can be a different place. We don't have to abandon pop culture. We don't know when God has abandoned pop culture. And as long as he's got us here and he's got us concerned and got us praying, I'm quite certain he hasn't. And I'm going to tell you, it can be different. Things can be different. Why in the world do we look around us and see all of these people in control of things and running things? I would, I would say to you this, we, we, these people who are in control, who are godless people, and there have always been godless people in control of things, they themselves can even be saved. So we look around and say, why, why, why? The answer is right here. This world can be a very different place. And so what I'm challenging you to today is to pray, to be bold, to be intentional, to stop whining, to walk by faith to believe and trust that this world can be changed. It can be different, but it starts with you. It starts with you. It starts right here in your heart and your decision to trust Christ.
Church, don't give up. And don't give in. Because the gates of hell cannot prevail. And gates are a defensive measure, not an offensive one. And that simply, by its illustration, that illustration teaches us and tells us that we're to be on the offensive. And you're only on the offensive when you're boldly marching by faith and expanding the kingdom of God. And these words were not simple words for this generation alone, but words for this generation too. It is time that we stand up. And not that we stand up for a politician or political party, not to stand up for a law or anything amendment. I'm talking about standing up for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the answer for this world's problems, the answer for this generation like it has been for every generation, and have faith in God that he's going to change this generation. Let's bow together and pray.